Hey everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of No Restraints with Rudy Caceres. I'm Rudy Caceres, and this is amazing. This is the first show of 2019. This is actually the first No Restraints since September 2018, right before I did This Is My Brave. So it's been quite the ride since then. And I knew that if I was gonna come back, I had to do something. I had to make an impact with a guest that I was gonna, um, spark a conversation with, not just with my own followers, but beyond. And I did that. I knew the person that I wanted was DJ Jaffe. And he's going to tell you about what he's about in his own words, because that's what I always start off with, my first question. And thank you to all the people who are already watching live. I see you, Rosie. I see you, Maria. Thank you so much. You get me excited to do this, because I... I was like seriously feeling like, oh, maybe this is the end of no restraints. Like, how could I outdo 2018? Well, here I am, 2019. And thank you so much to all of you. If you're watching this live, please let us know that you're here. Let us uh, show, let us hear where you stand in this debate, which I think will be a pretty civil debate. Not even so much a debate. I think we're just gonna chit chat, really. <laughs> we're gonna have a good time, okay? So that's what I, uh, assured my guest, DJ Jaffe, that you're gonna have a civil discussion. So if you're into having that, please leave some comments. If not, I totally get that as well. But just know that if anything is super uh, disrespectful in the comments, I will delete it. Sorry. If you're watching this later on in the day, later on in the week, I totally get that. Some people, they got work to do, they got families to tend to, that's totally fine. Please, please, please still comment show some love, show some respect, show something, comment, comment, because there is no point in just being silent all the time. Hey, Teresa, how are you doing? No, that if anything is super uh, disrespectful in the comments, I will delete it. Sorry. Without further ado, that's not, that's not like a robot repeating. Uh, without further ado, hey, Barbara, I'm gonna bring on my guest and I'm gonna ask him the million dollar question. Same kind of question that I asked every single guest, let's bring them on. Tell the whole world, the whole no restraints universe, solar system, galaxy, who is DJ Jaffe? Uh, I'm not a mental health advocate like most people are. I am an advocate for people with the most serious mental illnesses. And what I found is that they are often shunned by other advocates. So. That's basically in the context of what we're doing is uh, uh, I had given up a career about 10 or 15 years ago to work full time pro bono to try to improve services for people who have the most serious mental illnesses. Why do you care so much? Uh, I first came upon it. I have a uh, sister-in-law uh, with schizophrenia who I was guardian for for many years uh, back in the 80s. And that told me how horrific the mental illness treatment system is. I've always been a sucker for a cause. So since the mid eighties, I've been working to improve it. Okay. What did you do before then? Uh, I was in advertising. I say I went from having the world's most meaningless job. Uh, I would get people to buy stuff to having the world's most meaningful job, which is improving care for the seriously mentally ill. Cool. And what would you say has been the most rewarding part of doing your job right now? Um, it's feedback from families. It's 
feedback from consumers, peers, uh, who believe that I'm doing the right thing but are afraid to speak up and it's forming a nucleus for people who've basically been ignored by the system. And in addition, I'd have to say, you know, the passage of Kendra's law, the inclusion of certain provisions in the Men uh, Helping Families and Mental Health Crises Act, the getting half-fare subway passes for uh, people in New York City with mental illness, uh, those things have improved the lives of people with mental illness. Okay, so before we go down the rabbit hole, I wanna make sure we're on some common ground as far as vocabulary. So I see you all um, coming out to show your support. Uh, hi, Tamara, hi, Denise, how you doing? Hi, Rosie, hi, Chrissy Hodges. Hi, Stacy. how are you all doing? I appreciate all of you. Feel free to ask questions, feel free to leave comments. Um, so let's go through some, I guess, word association, uh, but feel free to uh, go in depth as, you, as much as you want about words. So I actually talked to someone last year. Her name was Caroline Mazel Carlton. I asked her kind of the same questions, but she's on like the other end of your type of view. So let's hear your take. The word seriously mentally ill um, that word's been defined in multiple places. It was defined um, probably in the 90s when the Wellstone Domenici Parity Act uh, was being passed. At that time, they defined serious mental illness by diagnoses. So it was schizophrenia, treatment-resistant, bipolar, I think OCD, but they went through specific diagnoses. When uh, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration was formed, and the Center for Mental Health Services uh, were formed in the 1990s. They came up with a definition and they said, serious mental illnesses are ones that impair someone's ability to function. So it's not a diagnostic definition, it uh, impairs, uh, dramatically impairs uh, their ability to function. And in the DSM, they list particular diagnoses that they consider serious mental illness. The interesting thing is no matter which definition you use of serious mental illness, they all come up with roughly the same percentage of the population that has it. And in my book, there's a, an appendices where I go through each of those definitions and how they came up with them because it is an important thing to understand we're talking about the same thing. Oftentimes when I'm talking to groups, they're talking about mental health, and I'm talking about serious mental illness. So many of the things that are good for to improve your mental health uh, don't help people with serious mental illness. And many of the things needed by people with serious mental illness, like hospitals, AOT, maybe ECT, um, occasionally by some, are not needed by people who simply have poor mental health. No, a common criticism of the term serious mental illness is that it kind of um, is superficial because if someone is, say, has like depression or if someone has OCD um, or other issues, that that can be serious if it leads to suicide or any other kind of major impairment. So it kind of says that bipolar and schizophrenia uh, are the major uh, mental illnesses. and. Really, I, what I believe is that what makes them serious or severe is not necessarily the symptoms, but how much they make others uncomfortable. What say you to that? 
No, I don't, I don't think the ability to make somebody else uncomfortable has anything to do with it. I do think an OCD is a great example. Some people with OCD work and do quite well, and others can't live leave their home because they're afraid they left the stove on. So some people have a functional impairment. Their illness creates a major functional impairment, and in others it doesn't. Likewise, depression can. Bipolar can be exceedingly well-treated and not create a functional impairment, yet other people are either treatment-resistant or treatment-non-responsive, and so for them there is a major functional impairment. And not only that, but these can change over time. But I wouldn't get hung up. I mean, a lot of people get hung up, you know, debating the head of a pin. Um, there are people who are seriously mentally ill. Outside the mental health industry, most people recognize that. Let me ask you, if you had a depressive episode, would you consider yourself mentally ill? It depends if it, if it meant, to, would I consider myself to have a mental illness? Yes. Anything to put it, let me, maybe this will help you. DSM basically, for better or worse, defines what a mental illness is. Using the definitions in there, about 20 percent of the population, 43 million adults, have some sort of mental illness. However, there are 4% who have a serious mental illness, meaning it impairs their ability to function. I am an advocate for that 4%, not the 20%. Some people have anxiety. Some people have mild depression. Some people feel sad. Those may be mental illnesses. They're not the population that I'm advocating for. And as my button says, we shouldn't shun the seriously mentally ill. My, well, my question is, 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 is the severity is what delineates someone from being just having a mental illness to someone who is mentally ill? I'm afraid I'm not. Someone who's mentally ill and someone who has a mental illness are basically the same thing. What I'm saying is, for among other reasons, because there's extensive data on it, um, that it is how much does it impair your ability to, to engage in the life functions. Can you provide for your own health, safety, welfare, food, or does your mental impairment prevent that? And if your mental impairment is preventing that, then whatever diagnosis you have rises to the point of being serious. And by the way, this is not me talking. This is what multi, and there's appendix, I think it's appendix A, which goes through the multiple definitions of serious mental illness. Okay, before we get back to our terminologies, um, let's get to some comments. And these are, these are uh, I think, your people. So uh, Tamara says, my son spent six months of his life trying to kill himself almost every single day in psychosis due to schizophrenia. He had lost all connection with reality. Yes, it is more serious. Uh, Mary Highland Palifax says, medically, it is the presenting symptoms. Um, Matthew says, can you ask DJ Jaffe his thoughts on changing the classification for schizophrenia? And if he is in favor, would he stop using the term SMI? Um, one thing a lot of people don't understand maybe about my work um, is that it's focused on very narrow issues and they're generally chosen because others aren't working on them and I consider them important. Um, I was part of a movement led by Dr. Enid Pichel out of Yale in the early 80s, or excuse me, it would have been the late 80s, 
to change the name of mental illnesses to neurobiological disorders. Now, recently to, to recognize that like every other organ of the body, the brain can malfunction. And, and so it's not a mental disorder, it's actually a physical. Um, recently, SARDA, uh, schizophrenia, uh, schizophrenia and associated, I'm sorry, I can't remember exactly what it stands for at this point, but Linda Stalter and I think Laura Pogliano is now merged with that group. They're doing terrific work trying to have schizophrenia classified as a serious mental illness, as a physical illness. Okay, well, um, feel free to ask follow-ups, Matthew. Uh, Barbara says, thanks for having this discussion because I've heard more and more change needs to happen. Those who were turned away already may not return. So as advocates, it's difficult to guide them back to seek help, that they are compassionate people finding ways to help. Uh, doo -doo -doo. Um, so yeah, I think we're all caught up with comments, uh, but feel, feel free to uh, leave more. Uh, Maria says, people can go to work with mental illness, whether it is severely or it is not. Back to terminology, consumer, what does consumer mean? Uh, apparently it's a dated expression and you know, we go through all these phases of political correctness. So we used to have patients, then we had recipients, meaning recipients of mental health services. Then we had consumers and that was popular when I first started advocating. And now I think they're saying people with lived experiences. So, um, you know, there are all various expressions to describe people who have had interaction with the mental health system. Uh, and apparently I'm a little dated using consumer versus, oh, peer is another one. Uh, so that, you know, that, that language changes every, you know, five, six years, there's new language. Uh, the language isn't as much of a concern to me as the practices uh, the policies. So you'd be okay if they still called people like me insane? Uh, uh, I, again, I'm not, it's not my particular issue. I do, I do, I do have a high threshold. I use the term, oh man, that dude's crazy. And I don't think I'm insulting somebody, you know, a friend of mine who doesn't have a diagnosis. I don't think that I'm somehow dissing uh, the lived experience community by using these phrases as they are used colloquially. Now, I understand a lot of other people are bothered by that, and it's fine. Yeah, no, I mean, I have no problem with those kind of words, but say if you said, um, I'm going to do a Facebook Live with crazy person Rudy Caceres, that sounds kind of weird, right? Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't say it like that. So what is, what is, do you have an issue with the term lived experience? Yeah, I ha I don't know anyone who doesn't have some sort of lived experience. It's 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 done to it's done to hide the consequences. And this is one of the things that I really have a beef with the mental health industry, the peer community, the lived experience, is that our efforts are designed to hide the seriously mentally ill. As Dr. Ron Pease said, they're designed to normalize, trivialize, and romanticize serious mental illness. So if you look at public service announcements, for instance, they won't show somebody who's homeless, psychotic, delusional on the street. We only show high-functioning people and say, this is what mental illness looks like. 
And I think that that's giving a public a misperception. I think that it's um, making them less likely to want to solve the problem. And so I think that it's very important. And here's where peers or people with lived experience can really lead. Talking out like you do, explaining the experience, explaining the horror of being stuck inside your delusions, to be imprisoned by your psychosis, and helping other people ex understand the horror of it, I think is very useful. Uh, one of the only groups I know that's you know somewhat doing this is Glenn Close's group, uh, because they're going out and they're saying, hey, people with mental illness have to speak up and tell what their truth is. And in many cases, uh, that isn't what the mental health industry is basically doing. They're trying to hide this, paper it over with phrases like people with lived experience. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I have no doubt, uh, I have no problem saying that bipolar, which I have, which I am, can suck at times. Just like having someone who has like one leg, that can suck at times. Someone who's got other disabilities and impairments can suck at times and make you want to kill yourself. But for me, like I've accepted that and I've embraced it. Bipolar is who I am. And I know that really grates on some people and say, no, you're not your illness. No, of course not. Just like I'm Hispanic, that doesn't mean that's all I am. <laughs> I'm a male, that doesn't mean I'm all I am, but it's part of who I am. It makes up who I am. So I have no problem saying bipolar can suck, but there's so much more to it. So, I mean, I, I, I think that we agree that people need to be honest about what it's like to have these issues because and these conditions because it can suck at times. I can't tell you like how many times in the beginning where I said bipolar sucks i wish i didn't have this thing this horrible disease that i am suffering people are trying to make it seem like it's the coolest thing in the world trying to romanticize it but i've come to a place where i definitely don't romanticize it i don't see it as a superpower but i see it as something that is an adversity to make me a better person i think everyone needs to find some kind of adversity to make them a better person if, if a person doesn't have any kind of adversity in their life then they really haven't lived. What say you to that? Well, first of all, it's not really my issue. I focus on policy, but I do believe there are people who, and I forget what your last sentence was, but there are people who have not had adversity and they're real people. So uh, it, it is this whole thing that sometimes, you know, for instance, I'm a cancer survivor and there is, um, but I don't purport to think that I can tell people how they should treat their cancer. That's a purview of doctors who know a lot more than me. Within the uh, peer lived experience, consumer, patient community, there is this idea that they have some sort of superpower, a special sauce, which makes them able to uh, dictate um, what others should do, what the right thing to do is. And I think that evidence trumps that and so i'm always looking for the evidence in mental health you know to be evidence-based the program should have independent evidence it should improve a meaningful metric and those metrics would be things like homelessness arrest incarceration suicide needless hospitalization 
and for my purposes should do so in the target population, which is people with serious mental illnesses. But in the mental health community, uh, the evidence isn't independent, the metric isn't meaningful, and it's not being done in people with serious mental illnesses. I'm much more concerned about that. All right, we'll, we'll get back to this. I wanna make sure we catch up on comments. Um, thank you so much for everyone. Uh, Joelle Marie says, and um, actually let's, um, let's put this up. Um, if someone has experienced all those quote unquote functioning limiting symptoms, but now does not, are they seriously mentally ill or has that changed? Should their opinion regarding SMI be integrated and considered or no, because they have an improved quality of life? This is a confusing issue as many who have been incredibly impaired, but now have improved are determined to not have impactful enough impairment in broader discussions. Uh, well, first of all, let me say I'm not 100% sure I understand, but in general, um, it's evidence, not individual experience, anecdotal, which should be driving policy, in my opinion. Now, the issue of is somebody who has a serious mental illness and is doing well with or without treatment still seriously mentally ill? Let me say, in the way the data is collected, the answer is yes. If you look at the definition of serious mental illness, which was created at the time Samson Center for Mental Health Services was created, it says that if you were seriously mentally ill, but you're being successfully treated, you're still in there. Now, why is this important? It's just important because we're, when we look at the numbers, the greatest collection of data on serious mental illness is done by something called the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, which attempts to quantify how many people with serious mental illness there are. And so you gotta know who they're including and not. So the answer is somebody who has, when discussing the data, somebody who has serious mental illness and is doing, I had a major functional impairment, lost that, would still be considered um, to have a serious mental illness okay. in, in recovery. So, so I have um 100% disability uh, through the VA, and would you consider me seriously mentally ill? Well, first of all, I don't know your situation, so I certainly wouldn't do that. But it is very interesting to me that people are collecting disability at the same time claiming they're recovered. Why is that? Normally, disability is reserved for, or maybe should be reserved for people who can't function who need it. If somebody's doing very well, do they need disability anymore? You know, it's the same with uh, trauma. Trauma, if you're a veteran, you get a lot of benefits if you can claim you have trauma. So it's just there is financial things which is driving stuff. Um, I certainly don't know your situation, so I can't opine on it. Um, I know you're doing radio shows, you're giving speeches, you're traveling and stuff like that. You would know better than me whether you would be capable of working um, or not. I have a dear friend who seems totally capable of doing everything, but every time he gets a real job, quote, a real job, uh, he tries to kill himself. So that person is probably impaired, but to most people, he doesn't look impaired at all, or he doesn't seem impaired. Yeah, and I'll, I'll say this, because I think about this a lot, and if I wasn't on disability, 
my life would be a lot worse because before I was on disability, I certainly wasn't doing all this. I was completely lost, suicidal, mess in catatonic states. And so the fact that I don't have to worry about getting a quote unquote real full-time job is the reason why I'm in quote unquote recovery, which I, I hate that word. I hate the word recovery because I'm always one step away from just completely just collapsing and like just my whole world collapsing and feeling suicidal again. So it is definitely feeling like, um, like I'm just on the edge at times. So I try to make that clear to people just because I'm in front of the camera, I'm traveling, I'm giving speeches. 90% of my life is just doing nothing, like laying around in bed, and like just completely being a bum. And that is for the better. It's not because like I've like exploited the system or anything like that. It is a reason for everything. Right. This, uh, this issue came up very significantly uh, when Obama was president and it was related to the Second Amendment. Now, I'm not going to opine on Second Amendment, but the issue was um, uh, Obama passed a regulation which Trump supported but reversed within 90 days of taking office that said somebody who is uh, who has a mental disability is on Social Security and has a representative payee. We're going to use that as a proxy measure for somebody who shouldn't have a gun. Now, of course, the lived experience community came out against this because of this, you know, desire to say the mentally ill are no more violent than others. But in this case, you have somebody who has told government, I am so disabled, I need Social Security. Then you have somebody who has a representative payee, meaning somebody thought they couldn't manage their money, and the person on SSDI elected either agreed with them or elected not to challenge that. And so it seems to me that that was a good proxy for someone who's seriously mentally ill and maybe shouldn't have a gun. But in the peer community, because they self-admitted that I am so disabled, I can't work. So if you're so disabled, can't work, you're so disabled that you can't manage money, I think that I thought it was a fair proxy. Now nobody has to worry about this because Trump overturned it. <laughs> and, and I'll say this: is that people so imagine that's one of the things the uh, lived experience community uh, liked about Trump. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's 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 a, a great guy. Um, he, I'll, I'll say this about the whole gun thing: is that people can be pressured into signing up for Social Security and even to having a represented payee. So, in my opinion, it casts too wide a net. Like if I had it my way, no one would have guns. Like I, I, I don't like guns and I was in the army. So, but when you, when you cast that wide of a net and you start putting people in databases that this person uh, can't have a gun because they're seriously mentally ill, like that's not the America that I want to live in. Right. Well, they, and I'm not, again, I'm not getting into whether we should have gun control or not, but I would think that somebody who admitted that they're so disabled, they can't work and is so disabled that they can't manage money, that that's a reasonable proxy. Okay. I want to get back to the word peers because you wrote an article for Psychiatric Times um, about the evidence is out on peer support and that it's it doesn't look too good. And I did read that. And um, 
I don't know if you knew this, but there was um, a response article to I yours read. in Psychiatric Times, which I have right here. Yep, I read. Yeah, what did you think of that? And for the people who are who don't know about this, which is probably like most people, because this is really insider baseball, can you talk about what your findings were and what the right. findings of the response article were? Right. Uh, basically, you know, peer support is widely supported. It's the idea is that somebody with mental illness should be given a job to help other people with mental illness. And so I looked at the studies on it. First of all, there have been zero studies, I want to repeat that, zero studies limited to people with serious mental illness. Secondly, there have not been studies that compared adding a peer to adding somebody else. Basically, they took treatment as usual, and then they add a peer. Well, if you took treatment as usual and added a mom, a dad, a social worker, a fireman, somebody like that, would the results be better? No studies have done that. Then I looked at meeting my three criteria. You know, are the studies independent? And in most cases, they're not. They're people who are paid to provide peer support doing research on their programs and saying their programs work. Now, the peer community abhors that when it's done by pharmaceutical companies, but apparently it's okay if it's a peer person doing it. Secondly, the metrics. The metrics are improving mental wellness, improving mental health. They are not examining rates of homelessness, arrest, incarceration, suicide, and needless hospitalization. I will say there is some evidence not strong, but there is some evidence on hospitalization that peer support might reduce hospitalization. Still none on whether it reduces it more than if that support was provided by somebody else. And then the most astounding thing, and I think there was a study that came out right after both our, it certainly came out after mine and it might've been incorporated in the response to my article. Do you know the dropout rate from peer support is 30 to 40%? Peers are voting with their feet. And they're saying, this isn't something that's helping me. Further, there is such a wide variety, a wide variety of what is peer support. Is it respite center? Is it helping you fill out your SSDI forms or your Medicare? You know, so it's, it's not saying that. So I didn't say peer support doesn't work, and that's important. What I said is there's not evidence it does, and yet it's being massively implemented. All right, a few things to that. Let's see where we can start. Um, so peer support is nothing new. I mean, I think people like think okay. it's like it's like some trendy new thing. Can I jump in? Sure. One thing I maybe haven't been clear about: there is strong evidence for peer support for alcoholism, veterans, formerly incarcerated, uh, and possibly other groups but there is no evidence for people with serious mental illness. Yeah, and um, I appreciate you saying that. And peer support, it's nothing new. It's been around forever. Um, people consider Dorothea Dix a peer advocate. She had her own um, lived experience. <laughs> and so it's, and it's, it's, it exists in other fields, such as uh, people who are cancer patients and other uh, conditions. So peer support is, is nothing new. It's not some new agey thing. Um, as far as uh, the burnout um, 
of peer supports. I'm I'm pretty close to people who work in peer support, and it is it is a horrible, horrible um, system. The job is great. It's the, the way they're treated because they're either not paid at all and expected to do the same work as a social um, social worker or case manager. Um, they're just completely disregarded, treated like they don't know anything about anything. And even when they are paid, there's all these caveats. It's like minimum wage for doing work that someone with extra letter ahead of their name would get paid three, four times as much. And so it, the reason for the burnout is because of this, not because it doesn't work or they're not seeing results. It's dealing with the, the red tape and the system and all that stuff and just basically tr being treated like peers, peers don't matter. That is why there's such burnout with peer support specialists as far as um, what a peer means. I totally agree with you. That is, that is. I think that's the main. In the interview I, here. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's the main. Let's go. I Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> I think that's the main issue. You got, you you got your turn to talk, and I want to say that we both agree that there is not a good definition of peer. It even where I live in Los Angeles, there's like peer can mean five different things. So it's hard to have a wide um, study across the board across the country of what is effective peer support when there's so many organizations, even run by peers, that are doing it wrong. Yeah, I, I would agree. The, um, but to understand the burnout, I mean, you're a little concerned that peer supporters are burning out. I'm not that concerned. I'm concerned with why they're being hired at all without evidence that they're improving, independent evidence they're improving a meaningful metric. When I, I just want to be clear in, in case there was misunderstanding, when I was talking about the 30 to 40 percent rate, that is recipients of peer support who elect to stop receiving peer support. The study you mentioned um, that came out after my paper and possibly was included, I think Davison or somebody was the author of that one, um, it didn't show that even these improvements in these soft metrics, wellness, sense of happiness, sense of progress, it didn't show that those were related to the number of times someone received peer support. So the evidence is virtually not there. It's certainly not there for serious mental illness. It's certainly not there for improving meaningful metrics. Yet the narrative these days is, oh, everything can be fixed as long as we add a dash of peer support. And I'm just not buying it. The evidence isn't there and I'll stick to my guns on it. Yeah, now, I understand I that everyone who gives peer support believes it works. And I understand without evidence, and I don't usually admit things without evidence, um, that being a peer supporter can be tremendously beneficial to the person who's giving it. People who get peer support jobs, their hearts are in the right place. They want to help. It's giving them a sense of accomplishment. It's giving them a meaning to their life, and it's giving them a salary, which, as you pointed out, SSDI is helping yours. So I do believe being a peer supporter has value. I am questioning whether being a recipient of peer support does. Yeah, and I'll also say that just because someone is continuously seeking peer support doesn't necessarily mean there's something wrong with them. Like, um, it's 
people should reach out to support. And if someone doesn't have, say, a close uh, relative, someone in their family or someone in their community that they can confide in, that's not going to be judgmental, that's not going to be worried about like labeling them or othering them. I think there's something to that. Like, I think that like that's just that's obvious that there are people who need people in their lives to offer support when otherwise no one would offer it. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Well, this is one of those things where we could talk two, three, four, five hours about, but I want to make sure that we keep moving along because I know you got to get on with your day. <laughs> um, Judy Gabinski, someone I know pretty well. Um, I think what makes, let's put this up here. I think what makes a mental illness, quote unquote, serious has a lot to do with how self-aware of the illness people are and their ability to distinguish delusion from reality. Many dangerously delusional people are very, quote unquote, high functioning. What say you to that? Um, most people with, you know, she's talking about dangerous people. Most people with mental illness are not dangerous. Most seriously mentally ill even are not dangerous. There is a subset who are, and it's almost exclusively the untreated. And, um, and you know, and so that's that who tends to be dangerous. And then it doesn't even mean that all untreated, seriously mentally ill are dangerous, but clearly there is a group there. And what bothers me a lot was, you know, again, political correctness run amok in our industry is um, everyone says, you know, it's this platitude. The mentally ill are no more violent than others. Well, if you consider it lived experience, which everyone in the world has as being your uh, N, then sure, if you consider, you know, 50% of the population has a diagnosable mental illness or 20% does, certainly. But I think when people ask that question, they're not asking about, you know, the person in the next uh, station on the assembly line who's doing quite well taking their Zoloft or Prozac or meditation or mindfulness or whatever. They're talking about the seriously mentally ill. And so you get all these data which, you know, are showing, you know, oh, the mentally ill are no more violent than others. Almost all those studies are of the treated. What they show is that treatment works they don't show the mentally ill are no more violent than others. And we in the industry know the seriously mentally ill are more violent than uh, the untreated seriously mentally ill are more violent than others. Our psychiatric units are locked. Liver units aren't locked. Psychiatric nurses wear panic buttons. Those in heart units don't. We're training police to go out on calls, mental illness related calls, not calls for people who have untreated psoriasis. And even our outreach workers go out in pairs for their own safety. Yet we keep putting forward this myth that, you know, the platitude, the misleading myth that the mentally ill are no more violent than others. And that is true if you're talking about the 20%, you're limiting your studies to the treated. But it's not true about the untreated seriously mentally ill. They are proportionately, not 100%, but proportionally more violent than others. And we can't keep shunning the seriously ill. So what makes someone other, or maybe there isn't another reason, other than being untreated that makes someone violent? Well, I think there's, you know, there's a, there are other causes of violence other than mental illness. Poverty might be one, 
but I work in the mental health field, so I'm trying to eliminate that component of it. Yeah, I mean, it's, I feel like you can't just completely um, ignore those issues, especially drug abuse, because well, a lot they, of these people are on the streets that are violent. I'm not denying that people aren't violent. It's usually because they're on something else. They're well, doing that or on some other substance. The, the data is clear that the untreated, seriously mentally ill as a group are more violent than others. The data is also clear that if they abuse substances, they're even more violent than that. You know, and then there's a whole debate, you know, is substance abuse related to it? So, you know, you can't, basically when you X out substance abuse, what you're doing is, you know, disingenuously Xing out some of the most seriously mentally ill. I'll tell you where this comes up a lot because there's another platitude in the industry. The mentally ill are more likely to be victims than perpetrators. This is, you know, part of the DNA of the mental health industry. But the studies on victimization and perpetration aren't equivalent studies. So the victimization studies might include substance abusers while the perpetration studies exclude them. So you're, you're artificially decreasing one, artificially increasing the others. They're not equivalent populations. Yeah, I, and I, I think that we can both agree that mental illness in of itself doesn't make people like kill others, make people violent. There are other issues involved. It could be poverty, it could be past trauma, it could be drugs, it could be other things. And I just feel like we have to treat them all together. And we need to make sure that we're addressing all these issues. You can't just say that mental illness in itself, and if you put someone on medications, if you put them um, in a hospital, or if you give someone ECT, then that'll solve the problems. Where does that leave us? I think you should, you're arguing for treating the whole person and, you know, that's mom and apple pie. Great. Yeah. And so we're in agreement that treatment is more than just taking your meds and going to see your doctor. Um, it's for many people, though, it's the sine qua non without which the others can't happen. And this comes up in housing first, where we're going to take people who are psychotic, delusional, place them in their own apartment with drive by supports and think they're going to be able to maintain that department or some of the most seriously ill getting under control with medication is the only thing that's going to make the poverty reduction, the trauma reduction, and all these other services accessible to them. So medications is, or ECT, as you point out, is often an important part of it, not for a hundred percent, but for many. Yeah. And okay. So, you know, in um, say the UK is that they have a similar rate, of diagnosed mental illness, yet violent crimes are significantly smaller in that country, even per capita, than the US. So I just go back to, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, is that there's some major issues that need to be addressed other than just the person taking their, taking their meds and seeing a doctor before we can reduce violence in general, mental illness or not. Yeah, I'm focused on the mental illness. And again, so I'm not taking a position on Second Amendment beyond how its effect on persons with mental illness. The things that might reduce crime overall 
and you know, for example, possibly ending poverty would also affect the mentally ill, but they're not things exclusively for the mentally ill, and that's what I'm focused on. Yeah, I don't think there's any solution, even accommodation solutions, that just makes everyone better. Like I said, adversity has to exist in the world, and I get it. Someone who has like no legs or whatever um, has it worse than someone who's like been born into privilege, but adversity exists in the world and is a necessary component of the human condition. That's what I believe. I'm not speaking for everyone else in some grandiose sense, but there's nothing that's going to solve everyone's issues, mentally, physically, whatever. Um, but I, I do believe, I think that's one of our major disagreements is that you say like, I just focus on mental illness and just helping with that. But I'm saying there's all these other things that are the reason that make people like this. Again, <laughs> and we need to address those. Yeah, where I'm working on is issues where I think I can make a difference that nobody else is. Those other issues improving society, there are plenty of other groups working on, and I don't think I have that much to contribute. I am taking on the issues which the mental health industry has largely decided are politically incorrect, are not going to address, and yet have a major impact on people with serious mental illness. Okay. Fair I want other people, people, I always get asked the question, and I think it's a good question. People say, DJ, there's so many things that are needed. I mean, you could talk about housing, you could talk about hospitals, you could talk about clubhouses. Some people will say peer support. And they say, you know, what should I work on? The system's so awful, you know, case management. And I say, work on whatever you're passionate about, other than stigma. Work on whatever you're passionate about and go deep. Become the expert, become the go-to person. Figure out what level of government can solve that problem, what information they need to solve it, or what pressure you can bring on them to solve that problem. Be, go deep on fewer issues. If you want to go deep on poverty as an issue, you know, that's good. So I've gone deep on a few issues where I think I can make a difference and people are ignoring. Yeah, and we definitely agree on that about finding one issue or a couple issues that you're very passionate about and just hyper-focusing on those and giving it your all. And you definitely have done that. Like Googling your name, like you're featured in so many different things, so many newspapers, so many radio shows. And that's something that I admire about you is that you're not just resting on your laurels. You're putting in the work, you're spending your own money, you're traveling the country and you don't stop. Like, like I get that, like you've had setbacks with your health and family and everything, but you here you are. And that's something that I do admire about you. And I don't want it to just be like, like talk bad about DJ Jaffe day. So there you go. There's your free compliment. Chrissy Hodges says, uh, advocacy efforts don't have to be mutually exclusive. I resent your statement that the advocacy community shuns this SMI. I am an international advocate for OCD and I have worked and will be providing teams of peers inside the state institution supporting and advocating for these very people. It's offensive to hear those broad statements and is invalidating for the work so many of us do. But I think that's exactly the point I'm making, is she is working for peer support in spite of the fact there's no evidence it helps people with serious mental illness. So I would argue that that is one of the ways that she, whoever she is, is shunning the seriously ill.
by offering a service that doesn't have evidence based, it helps the seriously mentally ill. Okay. Well, um, Chrissy, feel free to follow up on that if you have any uh, links you want to share as well. Stacy says it is the way to describe the difference between someone um, who can care for themselves and one that cannot. Um, Joelle Marie says it's confusing the state unawareness of a personal situation, but then make such judgments regarding said situation. And I'm not sure what you see if she's referring to anisognosia. Yes, I believe that is. Um, oh, yeah, explain what that is to the people who are um, not on the up and up, the latest the terminology. About 40% of the seriously mentally ill, so the seriously mentally ill is only 4%, and I talk in adults, 4% uh, of the population, it's about 10 million, 11 million people, about 40% of those are so seriously ill, they don't even recognize they're ill. When somebody's walking down the street screaming, I am the Messiah, it is not because they believe they're the Messiah. They know they're the Messiah. Their illness tells them it is so. They are unaware that they are ill. And there are populations like that and they're being ignored. Um, what causes anagenosia? I don't like a lot of things. I don't think we know the exact cause. You know, there is all sorts of brain imaging and things like that. We're really, you know, the brain's one of those last frontiers. So I don't, I don't think we know the cause of it. We do know it exists. Um, almost all families of the seriously mentally ill have seen it in action. And, uh, you know, and then there's parts of the peer community who believe that being psychotic, delusional, hallucinating, having anisognosia is a right to be protected rather than an illness to be treated. And I would disagree with them on that. But would you say that, you said that all um, parents uh, with someone with a serious mental illness have witnessed this. Does that count as evidence? No, it's a good point. There's also tons of data and I have a, an, again, an appendix on anisognosia that goes through all the studies. I also have one on assisted outpatient treatment. One of the things I tried to accomplish with my book, which I'll plug in Sane Consequences, how the mental health industry feels fails the mentally ill, is um, it's not a book about what DJ says. It is exceedingly well researched. And what I did was, and some people complain because there's a lot of footnotes and it goes to the actual data and where possible there are URLs. So anyone can check it. Now there are certain areas, violence, anisognosia, probably the two, where there is a lot of data saying various things. And anyone can look at one study and say, aha, I found the proof for my point. So what I do is I look at all the studies that I can find, all the peer-reviewed studies, and, um, and, and see what they're saying. And then when you do that, you tease out certain things. For instance, there's a whole community centered around Robert Whitaker, that medications are poison, they kill, they're not needed, etc. Well, people are going to be surprised that to a certain extent, I agree with them when talking about mild mental health issues. For mild mental health issues, you may not need medications. 
they are wrong when they're talking about serious mental illness. So there's a lot of these areas and, and violences where if you look at the data as a whole, you can see, oh, well, I see how he came to his conclusion because he's looking at these studies, but he's not looking at these other studies that are on serious mental illness. It's the same with violence. When you start look, doing a deep dive into the violence studies, you find, as I've said over and over again, the mentally ill are not more violent. Even the seriously mentally ill are not more violent, but the untreated seriously ill are. So if you look at all the violence studies as a totality, you can see where, how some people are concluding they're no more violent and others are concluding they're violent. In that case, it's a division between whether they have a serious mental illness that's treated or not. Yeah, and I wanna, I wanna go back to anazonosia and because I've, I've read reports, I like reading, um, and there's, there's stuff even in the National Institute of Mental Health published in there. And I have yet to find something where the conclusion wasn't, we think most likely this is the issue. It's never been, this is fact. This is agreed upon across the medical community. So it just, it can be very, very disturbing that so many people, like even in WebMD, I was looking at that, there's a whole article on it. There is no absolute complete agreement within the medical community that this is what is happening to people diagnosed with schizophrenia. Listen, are there outliers? Maybe. I think that there is um, a, a consensus coming together that 40% of the 4% when untreated may have anastognosis. Now here's the thing, that doesn't mean they need treatment. I know seriously mentally ill people who have not a clue that they're seriously mentally ill are not in treatment, but will never be violent. Yeah, I don't think it's like, has to do really so much with violence, I mean, it's really more of like a person's experience not being validated just because you don't agree with it. If someone says to me, like, I think I'm Superman, like, I don't agree with that. I think that's not real. But who am I to say just because it makes me uncomfortable, just because I think that that person's wrong. It doesn't give me a right to take away that person's right. You're allowed to feel that way. Cool. Um, and as far as anazonosia, um, which was uh, originally supposed to be something that stroke victims have where they don't know that part of their arm is limp or something like that. Um, how did that get to be from being an issue with stroke victims to schizophrenia? Well, again, the, the cause isn't known, but, you know, I have the MRIs, or excuse me, I don't think they're MRIs, I think they're spec scans in my book, where they seem to indicate the part of the brain that's, um, that's affected. Uh, I'll be the first to say that, and I've said already, that the cause is not clear. Yeah, I mean... The existence is pretty clear. Yeah, and I think... Your friend who thinks... Who, and by the way, and you said, he told you he thinks they're Superman. I'm talking about people who say, I know I'm Superman. I am Superman. That's different. Your friend said he thinks. He's admitting maybe there was a problem. Maybe he's wrong about that. I'm talking about people who say, I am. 
Okay, um, going back to the stroke thing, that is something like people don't fully recover from, whereas there's people who say that they know that they are Superman get to a point where they no longer think that. Why is that? Why but stroke not, victims? I'll have to look into it, but I don't, I don't know that's true, that stroke victims don't recover from it. And the brain, you know, does have healing properties and with treatment. So, uh, I, I, you know, certainly, you know, somebody has anexognosia, it is possible that treatment will help them. Yeah, I will. I, um, but I if someone has... And that's not true for stroke victims. I don't, you, you may be right. I don't know that. But uh, yeah, and that's that's the thing is that I'm struggling to understand is that someone has anisnosia who's a stroke victim, you wouldn't give them antipsychotics or ECT to improve their condition. Well, I, I don't, again, I don't know the treatment for stroke victims. Um, I would look at Alzheimer's maybe as being better, dementia. And there are people who, uh, with dementia, for instance, you know, who wander, you know, think different things that are bizarre, think they're, you know, married to the nurse who comes into the room and things like that. So I think that might be more of equivalent. But again, my expertise, to the extent that I have it, which comes from studying very few issues, but trying to go deep on them is clearly, and I gave all the studies, not all the studies, I gave a lot of the studies in my book. Uh, there's a special appendix on anisognosia, on violence. And uh, I think the overwhelming weight of the evidence, for instance, when you did your WebMD search or your NIMH PubMed search, I don't know how far back you were going. If you only go back 10 years, you will find what the recent evidence is showing. If you go back 80 years, you're gonna, your results are going to be watered down by studies that were done before we know as much as we know now. Yeah, and like even the most recent stuff, there's no, there's no study that says this is how it is. This is agreed upon in the community. So just because it's someone in the National Institute of Mental Health or if it's someone that you look up to or if the Treatment Advocacy Center, Dr. E. Flortori says this is the gospel, that's not the same as something that is agreed upon, not even universally agreed upon in the medical community. It's not the same as something that's generally accepted. Here's a thing, a couple of things. First of all, again, and I hate to keep repeating myself, review the evidence in the appendix of the book on anisognosia. There is an awful lot of evidence. And the other thing is, is that within the mental health community, even the research community, there's an awful lot of nonsense and bad research out there. Uh, political correctness in behavioral health trumps science. And that is very clear, especially once you get outside, you know, specific medications. So, you know, we want to believe that even, even though there's never been a study on peer support for people with serious mental illness that shows it reduces a major metric, you know, there's still all sorts of studies out there showing peer support. I mean, it's amazing. The, the, the uh, Center for Mental Health Services has a, you know, like a 50 page document or something on the evidence for peer support. Well, if you read the actual evidence, it's like they, they have all sorts of articles that says, well, it's popular. There's more research on it. It's being widely implemented, what its future will be. 
but none of the studies in the entire document show that it improves a meaningful metric or that it was used on people with serious mental illness. Yet it has this mystique of now being evidence-based. So, and people sometimes get mad at me because I don't necessarily allow the latest neurobiological research to be posted on my pages. Why? So much of it turns out to be nonsense. Secondly, these summaries rarely reflect the underlying data. For instance, the studies on peer support don't tell people that, yes, 30, 30 to 40 percent of the people we were given peer support to elected to leave, and now we're just going to exclude them from their studies and only you know report on those who stay. So the summaries aren't reflective of the underlying data. And then the press release isn't reflected, isn't uh, true to what the summary says. So it requires a lot. And I would urge people to follow, they're called neurocritics. These are not anti-psychiatrists, but there are people who are identifying um, the nonsense, the bad research that's passing as qualified research. Uh, Keith Laws, uh, I think he's out of London, James Coyne, uh, I think he's out of the US and uh, the Netherlands, I think I could be wrong about that. And these are neurocritics. So for instance, the one they're exposing these days is uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, now this is, you know, widely worshiped and yet there's not evidence it helps people with psychosis. But we have CBT for psychosis and uh, in England it's called NICE, I forget what it stands for, but they, you know, evaluate things and they're saying, oh, CBT for psychosis. Well, you look at the research and it's just simply not there. Okay, and I, I don't want to go around in circles and keep repeating ourselves because I want to make sure that we get to all of these comments. And the thing about today's talk today is that I'm not trying to change your mind, DJ. Um, I hope you didn't think you were going to change mine. I <laughs> want to make sure that we're both putting all these, um, first off, no restraints with Rudy Caceres. I want to give a platform for different perspectives and not be an echo chamber. And that can include people who are anti-psychiatry, people who are pro-psychiatry, people who are just want to learn more. And for you, the viewers, I want to make sure that you know, do not do not end your education here. Do not end the discussion here. It's now time for you to do your own homework, make up your own mind, Le read up on the studies that DJ talks about, read up on the studies that I talk about, make up your own mind and get passionate about something. If you're passionate about mental health, laser point on something specifically that is your cause, okay? Because that's where you're gonna be most effective. And DJ and I, both agree on that. So let's get through some comments before we wrap things up. Um, we got quite a few. Uh, so doo -doo 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 -doo, Matthew says, I think if you ask 10 different people what recovery is, you get many different answers. Joelle says, it wasn't just mental illnesses, by the way. She's talking about the representative payee of the guns thing. People have representative payees for multiple reasons. Stacy says, if I knew how to video my son right this second and share it on here for all of you to see, then we can truly discuss the difference between one who is severely mentally ill and one that that is not. Joelle Marie, how does ability to manage money equate to potential for violence? That's where I'm kind of lost. Um, uh, do, do, Rosie DeJoy says, I solely support my 31-year-old financially and health. Um, Chrissy Hodges says, have you ever asked an individual in the hospital institution 
the value that peer support brings to them. Actually, let's pause right there. You got that, DJ? Yeah. Oh, you want me to ask? Yeah, I've, yeah. Been, in, I've been in hospitals and institutions. By the way, the hospitals and the institution that I'm much more likely to go in. In fact, I'm going Monday to Sing Sing, Ossining State Correctional Facility, um, is uh, jails and prisons. And um, a lot of our policies, you know, there's 400,000 seriously mentally ill in jails and prisons. Um, many in the mental health community are looking at the quality of care received by those in the mental health system without recognizing that the majority have, or not the majority, but so many have been kicked out of it and put into prisons and jails. Okay. I, and I appreciate you um, answering viewer questions. Uh, Joelle Marie again says people can stop being involved with a peer support when they feel they no longer need it. So again, what is dropout? Well, I think that when you're reporting data on the success of peer support, you should include the data on what happened to those who were receiving it. And if they were receiving it and left and then became homeless, arrested, incarcerated, suicidal, I think that would give you some insight into whether peer support is effective or not. Okay. Basically, you know, it's interesting. I went out to, I was speaking out in Utah and the Utah state legislature measures customer satisfaction. The satisfaction of those in the mental health system is one of their barometers of success. And I tried to explain to them that number goes up every time somebody who's unsatisfied leaves. You know, well, if that person's unsatisfied and leaves, that shouldn't count them. They shouldn't be counted in the customer success column. They should be counted in the customer, you know, not satisfied column. All right, next comment. Um, Deb says, I found that connection to safety and a safe community is a vital piece to healing. Any two people create a community, even a hospital. Um, regarding peer support or therapists, anecdotally, I am hearing from people seeking therapy that they go through six therapists who cause more damage before finding the sixth one that gets it. If credentialed therapists ain't getting it, I have no idea how we expect peers to be any better trained to get it. Yeah, that's true. You know, the the shortage of professionals, the lack of training um, is horrific. You know, when they when there was a bill passing in Washington, um, uh, original language in that bill required that there'd be credentialing of peers and they would have to have medical knowledge and the lived experience community got that written out of the legislation. So yes, there is a problem with uh, the credentialing of peers. Matthew Shapiro, just like medication, peer support may work for someone, but not someone else, even if they have the same diagnosis. And me personally, I've tried peer support. It's never really worked for me. That doesn't mean that I, I think peer support does not work. I think, and I, I've heard other people say that, um, oh, I had a bad peer support experience, so therefore it doesn't work, it's bad, people shouldn't be able to bill Medicaid for it. Let me say, you know, I ha I, there isn't much evidence either that peer support hurts. Here's my problem. The government funds that go to peer support 
then create networks that organize against treatment for the seriously mentally ill. So buses show up at peer support networks to bring them to the state capital to argue against assisted outpatient treatment, which is the most well-researched, most helpful program for the most seriously ill, and yet the money that's going to peer support is used to oppose that or used to oppose electroconvulsive therapy or used to impose hospitals. So I don't think you can, what I'm very concerned about is less whether an individual is getting peer support, although there might be an anti-medication bias in that peer support, is there effect on the treatment system? And I would argue that the peer community's effect on the treatment system has largely been negative. It's been to drive care away from evidence-based programs to drive care towards higher functioning people and basically to shun the seriously ill. Yeah, I mean, I'll say that's, it's probably the last thing I say on, on peer support for today is that um, every peer support specialist that I respect and appreciate is not someone who tells the person what to do, whether it's to go off their meds, whether it's to like, quit going to treatment or whatever. It's about giving choice, about giving agency, about giving options. Even if the option is just, hey, do you want to go outside and talk? Hey, do you, can I bring you a, a soda or a sandwich? You start with options. You start with choice. And instead of making the person feel as if they're being controlled, as if uh, someone is making all the decisions for them, because I don't think that leads to someone being able to get to a point, right. serious mental illness label or not, they're getting to a point where they can start living their best life. Whether that means that they're a public speaker or if that means they're just spending most of their time at home, volunteering, what have you, is that I think it all starts with the person feeling like they have some kind of choice and agency in their life. And for me, that's what makes a good support specialist. The, a peer support specialist um, that doesn't do that is not a good peer support specialist at all. The, the, again, I don't want to leave the impression that I think that people who engage in peer support are somehow bad people or not really in their heart of hearts trying to help people. The question I'm raising, accepting everything you just said as to what they do is, well, if that was done by somebody else, would the results be as good or would they be even better? That question is unanswered. This idea that somehow peers have a special sauce, I understand the theoretical basis of it because they've been through it, they can relate better. I totally get that. Maybe it's even true. I'm just saying the evidence hasn't shown it yet. And I will say the special sauce, whether it's a peer support specialist, whether it's a psychiatrist, whether it's a, a, a prison guard, doesn't matter. It's about that. the special sauce is is agency. The special sauce is giving the person a sense of they have some kind of control in their life. Okay. Um, thank you. Uh, so to see if we have any more comments, because I know uh, there's a lot of repeat comments, and I know I appreciate all of you, but I want to make sure we're not um, double dipping here. Um, a second, so uh, do do do. Tell me, tell me a joke, DJ, while I'm going through these comments. Um, why is a banana peel on the sidewalk like music? I don't know why. If you don't see sharp, you'll be flat. 
That's one of the only clean jokes I know. Why limit to clean jokes? <laughs> um, yeah, no, but thank you for that. Thank you for playing ball. Joao Marie, if you, if you silo your efforts, you are willfully and intentionally ignorant of contributing factors to your concerns. If you choose not to pursue the information, then you continue to state it's not in your wheelhouse, but that is a conscious choice. She can feel free to say that. All right, and, and, I'll, and I'll just say that uh, um, a common, this is pretty much like the most common comment that I've been getting. You would be too if you lived with a seriously mentally ill person and there are little to no resources to help them. So basically people saying that, that I, I, I have no kind of basis to be speaking about these issues because I am not like peeing on the floor and screaming to walls. Right, the, um, you know, you said people should read earlier I would urge them to read my book. It's at the library, by the way, all proceeds go to charity. So I'm not saying this because I want to make any money off it, but this is the issue is that nobody is focused on the seriously ill evidence-based solutions for them are being shunned by the mental health industry. Yeah. And I also hear comments like I had to force my, my loved one in a treatment because they were going to hurt me or they have hurt me. And I don't want to be, I can't go into your house and know the full story, but I will say this. And you mentioned the psych wards that are locked down. You have the panic button and everything. When you treat someone like a criminal, when you treat someone like an animal, like they deserve to be locked up, don't be surprised when they behave as such. Absolutely, and that's why we should treat them before they become danger to self or others, rather than maintaining these ludicrous laws which require someone to become danger to self or others. Yeah, um, no, and, and we can agree there as well as that there's, we shouldn't wait till someone is on the streets, we shouldn't wait till someone is in jail to reach out to them. I think we have a a disagreement about what reaching out to them means, but I think we both can agree on is that we failed if the person is already to that point where they are just completely down their luck, have no kind of resources, have no kind of support. And that's sometimes related to anosognosia, uh, to being psychotic, delusional, locked inside their psychosis, and um, we should help them get free of that so they can engage in a meaningful exercise of their civil liberties. Okay. Um, oh my God. I don't think I'm going to be able to get through all these comments because uh, it just like keeps going on and on and on. So um, let me just uh, keep scrolling to see if there's anything that just like really sticks out because I'm, I really apologize to everyone who's commenting that I'm not being able to get, get to, which is a good thing. It's a good problem to have. But um, if there's anything that I didn't address, um, I will try my best to get to all the comments afterwards. And I would like to think that DJ would go back to the comments and see what he can do as well. Um, you do all psychiatric diagnosis. Joel, there is nothing subjective. Okay, please understand. Can um, Joelle Marie says, please understand my comment. One cannot look at a brain image and clearly diagnose anexinosia given a mixed group. It cannot be blindly diagnosed. Agree a hundred percent. That's why you kept asking me about what causes it. I don't know, but we can certainly see the manifestations of it. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the myths I keep hearing, you know, from the, uh, anti-psychiatry community is, you know, well, there's no blood test, uh, 
for schizophrenia and therefore it doesn't exist. Well, there was no test for colon cancer prior to the invention of the colonoscopy, and yet it exists. And in fact, there is a test for schizophrenia, and that test is if somebody says uh, the FBI planted a transmitter in your head, so you do one test and say, you know, do you think the FBI planted a transmitter in your head? And the answer is yes. And then you do other tests to eliminate other diagnoses like a brain tumor or hormonal issues or whatever other things are that can, uh, neuroencephalitis, whatever. Uh, then you've used a series of tests to conclude the person does have a serious mental illness. By the way, the same is true with Parkinson's. I don't believe, although maybe in the last couple of years I have, but until recently and there hasn't been a test for Parkinson's, you see the person's arm shake, you eliminate other diagnoses and you know they have Parkinson's the same for serious mental illness. Yeah, I think with Parkinson's though, you can you can see that that slide down. You, it, it's a very gradual thing, Parkinson's. So I would have I would like to think that the person can see that happening, can make some kind of advanced treatment plan that says that if I take a turn for the worse, that I want this to happen, or I just want to die, pull the plug, or I'm gonna um, kill myself. I'm gonna um, to take my life. Whereas there doesn't seem to be as much as those protections for someone who has a severe mental illness. Well, I, I don't think most people who live with those who have serious mental illness would necessarily agree with that. I think we very clearly see the slide. Okay. Um, well, I think the thing, the thing that we um, are disagreeing on, I think it's, it might be a minor thing, is that just because someone is exhibiting symptoms of schizophrenia, that doesn't necessarily mean the person should have their rights taken away or be told how to live their life. Yeah, and I don't know of any jurisdiction where that happens. Diagnosis of schizophrenia is not no one's rights are being taken away because they have a diagnosis of schizophrenia in order to take their rights away. There's all sorts of court hearings and things like that. So. It's a, it's a straw man. Oh, straw man. I like that word. <laughs> um, yeah, no, um, let's see. Uh, I appreciate all of your comments, and I seriously wish I can get to all of you, but I want to make sure um, that I don't, we could be here all day. <laughs> um, and it seems a lot of these comments are seeming to be about the same thing. And I wanna make sure we wrap up. Um, Jesus Christ, okay. <laughs> but that's a good, like I said, that's a good problem to have is so many comments. This is clearly right. the most commented on um, Facebook Live, no restraints that I've ever done. And we could talk for hours and hours and hours. Right. And if I'm, I yes, go on. Well, if I may, um, I sincerely thank you for having me on. It was very gracious. Um, I'm sure you're going to be getting a lot of shit for it, and um, and I do appreciate it. I also want to say when I look back on it overall, I think most of my narrative is not about peer support. I understand that that's a particular interest to your audience, and it's why we talk a lot about it. So I just want people to understand that in focus. And it was really nice. Yeah, I'm a left-wing 
liberal, I don't think that's a dirty word, I'm far to the left, I do an awful lot of work with conservative groups because they seem to get the issue. The My fellow Dems think throwing money at mental health is the same thing as delivering treatment to the seriously ill, and it's not. They've been taught by the mental health community that everyone recovers, that hospitals aren't needed, that uh, civil commitment shouldn't be used, you know, and a whole host of things that uh, are preventing us from finding solutions. So the fact that you're allowing your audience to hear my ideas, <laughs> and uh, and I hope everyone's nice to you after having done this. I just want to say I really appreciate it. Yeah, and you know, you know this. You speak about things like as controversial issues as we do. People are going to shit on us. <laughs> People are not going to like us, and. But I want to make sure that I'm not afraid to speak my mind because I'm going to get a negative backlash. There are times where it just makes me just, just want to crawl up into a hole and just never want to talk to people again. I, there are days where I just like don't want to do this anymore. But the fact is, I have to stop people like you. <laughs> but well, you picked a hell of a way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, in all fairness, though, I, I do appreciate you coming on because I know that you didn't have to do this. You can go do, keep doing your own thing. You could be like on Fox News or being published in the New York Times, but you're coming on my little rinky dink show, No Restraints, and you're pulling no punches. You hold nothing back. And that's what I wanted from you. I wanted the DJ Jaffe who's not going to hold back. And that's what I got. And like I said to all of you watching this, no restraints, episode 30, please, please, please take everything that I said, take everything that DJ said, everything in the comments, make up your own mind, continue your education. Because I don't know everything. DJ doesn't know everything. You don't know any. <laughs> you don't know everything. You just don't. So keep educating yourself and don't get stuck in an echo chamber. Don't get stuck in a rut and keep, keep evolving, okay? And have fun, damn it. <laughs> Thank you, DJ. Thank Thanks, you yeah. to all of you. I'll be back next Friday, episode 31. I'm back. <laughs> Thank you again. Have a great day, everyone. Until next time. Oh, uh, yes, I have to do the tagline. Um, something, something, because it's for your own good. <laughs>